0: Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 113, recorded on July 3rd of 2020, uh, the Photo Geekery show where, uh, oh, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka and uh, I usually have somebody in the co-pilot seat, which I do today, and it's a new voice to this particular podcast where we geek out about whatever I can drum up out of the news cycle on a weekly basis. And with me uh, to, uh, to beat that drum is uh, a fellow photo geek, somebody that I've admired for a long time. I've heard his voice as I was uh, formulating my career as a photographer <laughs> and sage advice uh, over those formative years may have had an impact on me. And so I'm thrilled to be sitting down today with Juan Pons. Juan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Well, thanks, Don. That was a a great introduction. And I'm I'm happy
0: that I was able to help out along the
1: way, even if it was unbeknownst to me.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's I might be doing the same thing now, Uh, passing it on because I have no idea who's listening. Uh, I I know the podcast is listened by many, Um, but uh, give me the uh, I always ask people the elevator pitch. You know, who are you as a human being, as as a photographer to, to get us started here so we can get inside your head a little bit?
1: Um, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a photographer, a wildlife photographer mostly, nature and wildlife. Um, kind of accidental photographer, like a lot of us. I was a, a computer engineer for many, many years, and left that rat race um, just because it was kind of stressful. And I really enjoyed photography. I, I, I my photography uh, really started in high school when I had a really amazing photography teacher that uh, allowed us to experiment with a lot of different things and uh, taught us. Um, the Fundamentals of Photography, which to this day, you know, I use on a daily basis. Um, so I'm very, very grateful um, for my teacher, which I, you know, still stay in touch with. Every once in a while, we exchange emails to see how each other's doing, which is which is really cool. But, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, I was uh, shopping film for many years and uh, made the switch really early on, very, very early on to digital.
0: Um, now, how how bin, early are we talking? Are we talking like the, the Kodak DCS, like no, modified cameras?
1: Just after the DCS, basically the first consumer digital SLR, which is the, the uh, Canon um, 30D, not the D30, but the 30D is a three megapixel, $3,500 DSLR.
0: That um, came out at the same time as the D60, I believe, right? And they they, they uh, roughly within the same window. They had two uh, models that they really yeah. kind of opened up with and said, aha, we're digital now. And not many people listened.
1: Well, um, yeah, I mean, Canon was really one of the first, or if not the first to come up with a consumer DSLR, really, because there were a number of uh, uh, digital cameras out there. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't know this, but you know the first digital, who, who came up with the first digital camera? The first digital consumer camera.
0: Uh, Well, I'm going to say Kodak, but I'm probably wrong. Apple. Apple. Oh, well, they had their Quick Cam, right? The Quick Take 100. Yeah.
1: Which was, you know, a black and white, you know, camera used a three and a half floppy disk. I think it took three pictures (laughs) per floppy disk. It was pretty, pretty cool.
0: I, I you know, and I, I have some vintage cameras as well. You know, I've got uh, the earliest one from Panasonic here uh-huh. from 1996 or 1997. Uh, the 90s were a really interesting era for digital <laughs> yeah. photography because you you could come up with a camera that broke all of the conventions as to what a camera right. should actually look like because it didn't right. have to have a film reel in it anymore. Right, um, and and that was, I mean, a lot of experimentation and and innovation and largely is forgotten because they were so bad by the standards between the comparison of film that uh, digital didn't matter. it was a novelty. it was a toy uh, at, at least right. during that era. And as soon as you got the first sort of uh, professional uh, digital SLRs hitting three to six megapixels in that range, mm-hmm. then it started to you know be a different battle. Um, which leads into our first story, an opinion piece on DP review which this is the perfect segue, uh, opinion, uh, the film versus digital debate settled once and for all, which is just a clickbait title to, Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> and that's why it has over 600 comments on this particular article. Uh, okay. So the, the substance of this written by Aaron Gold, um, <clears throat> well, let's just keep our discussion going and using this as just a a, a foothold for it, because honestly, we're going to come up with our own opinions on this. And so did every of the hundreds of people in the comments. Um, I enjoy film photography as a, um, uh, as a sort of a, a pleasure, a joy, a toy—something that I don't right now consider pro- for professional work. I experiment with all sorts of stuff. I've got medium format 3D stereoscopic 3D cameras that That's I crazy. love to play with, uh, and they're like monstrosities that are just—you know—they they it tickle me in a really interesting way. You know, you just you pick up a camera like that, and it just feels unusual and creative, and you're out of your elements uh, when you're doing that sort of stuff. So there's a certain joy and a tactile feedback for having something shot on film that you don't necessarily have with digital. All of the work that I share with the world is shot on digital because it's just that much more dramatically better today in terms of resolution, uh, editing capabilities, etc. So when you made that transition from film to digital? Did you ever go back and forth at all? And where do you (laughs) feel about film now, especially when you're talking, well, in larger formats, does film still have a place?
1: Well, you know, it's kind of funny, because, you know, like I said, I shot film for many, many years, you know, black and white for, I don't know, about a decade, it was developed by my own film, um, was printing my own work. And I never really enjoyed being in a dark room, in a wet, in a wet dark room. It you didn't like going to bed with
0: your hands smelling like fixer. No,
1: no. I mean, I, I, am convinced. I, some of my nails are still screwed up from some of the chemicals back then. You know, I, you know, I think the first time that I did it was kind of cool. You know, that, that you know, and you see this in movies, right? That revelation of that first image appearing on the paper. You're like, wow, this is kind of neat. But that kind of wore thin pretty quick. Um, so I never was a big. Uh, uh, Wet, dark, and kind of person. You know, I shot. Um, I then shot uh, chromes for many time for for many many years. Slide film, and I was scanning my work because I was also printing
0: my work. Yep, um, uh, and you know, slide on. film is is if I'm if I'm going to shoot film, it's it's going to be slide film these days.
1: Oh, I, I, absolutely! I mean, slide film is absolutely you know incredible. Both Velvia and Provia, which were my two favorite uh, of stock, I shot those for many many years, and you know, I would send those out. Um, to get developed, and then I would scan them because I was printing my own work in the very early um, uh, uh, inject printers, uh, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was an adventure in itself. At the very beginning, doing inject printing was just not for the faint of heart or for the strap for cash, because you (laughs) went through ink and paper like there was no tomorrow. Even today,
0: it's not for the faint of heart. Uh. True,
1: but it's it's, magnitudes, easier today than it used to be back then
0: there were I remember, no profiles yeah I, well exactly you had no idea <laughs> you had to really just kind of massage the file <laughs> and hoping that whatever yeah. changes you did matched what you wanted on the output. Uh, <clears throat> I, but and even in the earlier days when it wasn't photographic quality uh, like it wasn't like my family did not buy a photo printer in air quotes they just bought right. an inkjet printer right and my right. dad was an early adopter to photography at that time digital photography and, uh, he would print out stuff on this very bad printer. <laughs> and I remember going through things, uh, when he passed away, uh, a little over a decade ago and he, he kept a lot of those prints that faded just like them? an old I mean, because they would fade in ten minutes. They they would look like uh, cyanotypes now because all of the red pigments would disappear almost immediately, and the paper would yellow because it wasn't photographic paper. It looked like an old newspaper. Well, and there were dye inks too. They were not pigment inks. They were dye inks, so they just
1: they just fade real quick.
0: Yeah, and so the digital era really was not comparable to anything that you could do in the, the dark time. room at that, at that time. At that time,
1: absolutely. You know, I you know, it, it's funny because you know, I was scanning, like I said, I was scanning my film and I was printing it myself. And, I, you know, scanning, it's a nightmare onto itself because you had to deal with dust and all sorts of issues. And you, the quality was getting reduced because you were doing a transfer from one medium to another. No matter how good your scanner was, it's just, it just wasn't the same. Um, when Canon came out with the first digital SLR, because I had dabbled with the little pointed shoots. I don't even remember one of the ones that I really liked was the, uh, the Nikon p 900 I think it was and kind of split in half which was
0: great uh, the, for macro work the P9000 I, they might have reused or, the name because the, I remember that being a more recent super zoom camera but so I do maybe, remember yes
1: so they may have reused I, the name P9 something 900 maybe I don't know
0: uh, but I do remember those early designs where you could like yes. pivot the camera of like from the, the right. lens portion and the grip. Uh, yeah, exactly. this. yeah. Uh, I, I think Casio might have made something back in the I, day, I believe so be- too. Yes, because yeah, they, yeah. They, they were big in the early days. Um, but yeah, so so we,
1: I, you know, I when the first one came out with that um 30 or uh, D30, not the 30D, the D30, which was like, like I said, the first consumer. Digital SLR, meaning outside of the Canon DC, or the uh, Kodak DCS series, right? And they were expensive um, too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, well the DCS series was insanely expensive. The the D thirty was like thirty five hundred dollars, which at the time was a humongous amount of money. This was you know mid mid to late nineties. Um, but you know I went out, bought the camera. You know, kind of just because you know I, I I was sick of scanning. I was sick of dealing with film uh, for all the issues. And I will tell you, and I tell this story all the time, the day before I picked up that digital camera is the last day I've ever shot film. <laughs> so it was an not immediate shot switch. Film. It was, initially, I thought it was going to be maybe 50-50, and you know, i do this. But no, once I got those files out of that camera, even though they were three megapixels, they were so clean and beautiful compared to all the work that I had to do to the scanned images that it was like a no-brainer. I'm like... Why would I ever go back to, to film? Now, I don't have anything against film. You know, it's just not for me. You know, I know lots of people that use film. I have friends who shoot almost exclusively large
0: format, you know. Um, uh, I've just put in cameras, an order for, some, uh, for for 10 sheets of Kodak Portra one, uh, 160 in mm-hmm. 8x10 format. Uh, because I have an 11 by, uh, 11x14 studio camera, and that's the largest that I can get color film these days. Um, have I ever used that camera? no, it's still a restoration project for me. Um, but and will I use it beyond those 10 sheets of color film? Probably not. You know, it it just becomes a a point of novelty. Uh, from my perspective, will those shots be good? Uh Well, it depends on my photographic uh, skill set uh, to, to make them good. But Will, from a technical perspective, the resolution and the quality and everything be there? Uh, yes, and it will uh, outshine a lot of what I could do in the digital space. But the effort to get there... Um, is insurmountable. Uh, and I, th- there's only one group buy of a color large format film of that size that happens on a yearly basis. Usually um, the in the past, the boxes were like 50 sheets a box and I wasn't going to buy in at that price because it's expensive. It's like $30 a sheet. Um, uh, so when they limited the, uh, uh, or redesigned the boxes to be 10 sheets a box, I figured, okay, now I'll buy it. And I'll stick it in the freezer next to my Provia 400 that's been in there for a few years because they stopped making that, Um, and it will stay there for a long time before I ever get around (laughs) to exploring it, and it'll it it won't be anything more than revisiting a memory, a memory that I never had uh, one because I never grew up shooting film. I started in in the digital era, and then I'm as a lot of uh, film shooters are. it does have a kind of a hipster vibe when you can pick up a camera right, from the right. 60s or 70s. It's and a new shoot experience, it. right? It's a new experience. I mean, it, it's like uh, typing on a typewriter for the first time. Right. It's right. very tactile, right. and right. it might feel really interesting, and then you quickly tire of it. So, um, you know,
1: so that's why I, I find this sort of title for this for this article kind of totally clickbaity, only because you know it's it's that you know that that those hot button issues, digital versus film. But not only really that is a debate. There is no debate. What, what's the debate? They're just different things. It's like saying you know the debate versus apple versus oranges. There's no debate there. They're just different kinds of fruit. If you yeah. enjoy shooting film and it's something that you like doing you know, knock yourself out, be happy with it. Who cares? Do it. You know, there's nothing to debate.
0: Uh, it's not like the debate, uh, if there ever was one between, uh, uh, audio cassette tapes and CDs, right? Right. (laughs) CDs, like it was, it was vastly better in almost every possible way. And you really could not argue yourself out of the corner if you were trying to uh, defend cassette tapes. Right. Right. Um, Uh, about the only defense you could possibly give is that you could easily have a little adapter for your car that would plug into the headphone jack of your phone if you had a car vintage enough to have a cassette tape to adapt that further right. on into the digital world, um, which I made that argument at some point in my past. But uh, no, if you want to shoot film, just love it. Embrace it. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: You know. I mean, as long as you're not hurting anybody, my philosophy, as long as you're not hurting anybody, enjoy your passions. Enjoy what you're doing. If you love to shoot film, you want to spend the time, you want to, you know, some people love that process. You know, the process of developing, the process of printing. You know, I you know, I, I don't because, you know, I I looked at the number of, of, the amount of money that I spent on slides that were in the trash <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 um, the, the stress of mailing out my roles of Provia and Velvia out to Fuji to get developed and they sometimes get lost in the mail. If I did them locally, sometimes they messed them up when they were developing them. So that whole thing, you know, is not for me. But if it's for you, uh, even more, more power to film. you.
0: The the, the last rules that I had sent out to be developed, I had to send to Quebec, and I'm in Ontario, because there was nobody in my province that would develop E6. Uh, And yes, I can get the chemicals and I can do it myself. uh, But, I mean, temperatures have to be fairly precise. I was never... I, I was never keen on exploring that particular avenue, and I know it's not difficult. It just requires a lot of attention, right. and I don't want right. to be responsible for that particular screw-up. Um, now, I think that there is a place in Toronto that develops E6, so I'm going to have to check that out when I shoot a few more roles, whenever that is, because it's not going to be anytime soon. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, film, I- in a different sense... Um, there has been one project I've been wanting to explore. And it was, um, I made a, a poster print of uh, like 400 of my snowflake images in the past. Mm. And I, uh, it was a gargantuan project to, to undertake just to create the digital files, which were like over a gigapixel, uh, when I finally composited everything together, all scaled um, uh, in relative size. And I would always put a scale on, uh, on, on the print of like, you know, um, cool, uh, 16 to one size or whatever it was. Cause it was uh, blown up. Um, but I always wanted to do a one-to-one, like an actual size print. Uh, and to have it so that if somebody kind of looked in with uh, an optical loop or a magnifying glass, that they would see uh, all of the detail in that. But inkjet printers are currently limited to 600 or maybe 800 DPI at best. Um, and the, the media itself, the paper has uh, a bearing on how much detail that you can see as well. So, uh, I was looking into um, uh, a technique where you can have, uh, you send a ridiculously high resolution file to somebody that will um, embed that in film, I believe with some laser magic or something, uh, at a resolution of roughly uh, 3600 dpi. Uh, so that is, uh, a lot higher than what an inkjet printer could do. And then if you were to take that as like an eight by 10, um, a piece of film and then contact print that, uh, onto photographic paper, then the resolution would still outstrip what digital can do today. And the, the thought came when I was scanning my old family memories and the old optically printed photographs were far superior than anything that came out of the digital space in terms of blowing them up and enlarging and yeah. the level oh, yeah. of detail yeah, within yeah. that. Uh, so there might still be a, a space for that, for obscure niche projects um, that, uh, that I will explore and maybe make uh, a limited print run of. But man, I'm, I'm grasping at straws here to try and find <laughs> find a, a use in my professional workflow to make yeah, it work. How,
1: how, many, how many people do you see go around looking at prints using a loop, right? Not that many.
0: <laughs> no, no. Uh, and uh, uh, hey, it's fun. And I'm well, so yeah, glad that, that yes. it's still a part of our uh, landscape as photographers. And I'm glad that there's a bit of a resurgence uh, in that and that there's new emulsions coming out because that means that there's a market for it.
1: Well, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, the, and the passion is there, which is, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I am astounded that you, you people are still shooting film, you can still get film, you can still get film developed. I, if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said, There's no way, there's, there's just you know, it would have gone completely out, nobody's gonna want it, you know, but that's not the case. It, 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 I, you know, and I attribute that a lot to also digital. Because digital has opened up the market to so many more people to get into photography and do photography, yeah. right? That, that, you know, naturally people are curious, you know, they, they get into it, they love it, they develop a passion for it, they want to explore all avenues of it. And they say, oh, what about this film stuff that I've never seen or done before? What's it What's all about?
0: A pilgrimage of sorts, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, and so, again, though, a lot of people are just snapping away with their smartphones today because that's where the majority of photos uh, globally are taken by volume. I'm not necessarily saying by quality, Mm -hmm. but by volume. Um, And so that kind of leads us into our next story (laughs) reported on Petapixel, a 72 year old woman uh, gored by bison in Yellowstone while taking pictures. OK, I'll uh, read the opening paragraph here and then we will discuss a uh, 72 year old woman um, uh, last week after she allegedly got within 10 feet of the animal, quote, multiple times in order to take its picture. Now, they don't say what kind of camera that she's using, but I'm going to guess it was a phone. Um, because there's no way that any photographer with a wildlife capable lens is going to get 10 foot away from a dangerous wild animal. Um, the incident is, is under investigation and the park has taken the opportunity to remind campers to always keep a safe distance while photographing wildlife, um, they say that distance is, uh, is considerable for bison. Uh, I believe they say 25 yards, which is, uh, tw- right. 23 meters or so. Uh, and for other animals, it would be, you know, uh, you know, coyotes, um, you know, uh, other like bears and wolves and stuff, uh, stay at least a hundred yards away. It's 91. So, yeah, so
1: the rule, the uh, rule is that 25 yards, just all animals, except for, um, uh, wolves, uh, bears and cats, you need to be a hundred yards away from, from the,
0: right. Um, and so uh, one, you, you know, these rules, you know how you shoot. And this is not (laughs) the first time we've heard of this kind of thing happening. I did look it up by the way, the woman survived and she's been discharged from the hospital, uh, which is I guess good news, but
1: uh, the sad, the sad part about this is that, you know, to me, summer starts when you hear this. Because it happens every year, you know, every right. every year you have someone that gets too close to the bison. You know, I've been leading workshops in Yellowstone, photo workshops in Yellowstone for over 16 years, you know, continuously. And I see this happening all the time, you know, and it's, you know, before the smartphones is, you know, people would do it with little cameras. Now they're doing it with smartphones and, you know, bison do seem to be kind of docile and dumb, if you will, if they look like cattle, but they're certainly not, especially bulls. Bulls can yeah, get don't annoyed. don't make a moose mad either. I oh, mean well, well, they'll make a mo- yeah, absolutely. Jeez. I mean a moose will trample you to death, which is, yeah. you know, probably worse than getting gored to death. I don't know. That's uh, that, I guess uh, yeah, that's
0: I, debatable. I, b- <laughs> I think b- either way, it's not a good way to go. Um, but uh, we we have these—I'll uh, call them majestic creatures. Uh, they're they're beautiful in their own right, but they are wild animals, and they live in a world that is so far away from ours in terms of uh, how they interact with each other and with their environment. Um, they see us as a threat. They have the tools to defend themselves, right?
1: Right, and and you know the thing is, this is totally you know. There are signs everywhere. You know, when you go in, you, you get a pamphlet that tells you to stay away from the animals. There are signs everywhere, so there is no defensible excuse that you can say, "Well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to get close to this animal." These are wild animals; they're going to hurt you. Yes, ninety percent of the time, they will just walk around you or ignore you altogether. But there's that, you know, couple of percent of the time where the animals will get really upset that you're so close to them, or they may not even look upset. They just don't like you being there. I've seen, I have witnessed so many cases of people getting close to animals. I remember one time in the Tetons, this there was this um, moose calf laying on the grass, and this photographer, you know, we were all, there were a bunch of us sitting there photographing the mother and the calf um, from, a, from a distance, and this photo- guy got out, got out of his car, started walking towards that calf got within two ten feet of the calf and that mama moose
0: Mm. Uh, (laughs) came
1: over and charged at the guy you know and they played that game you know how you you, you're one side of the tree the person's one side of the tree and the moose is on the other side of the tree they played that game for like five minutes you know the the the, the, the tree is the only barrier there. that's saving that man's <laughs> life
0: at that point, right? Yes,
1: until the moose finally gave, you know, got tired and walked away. But yeah, it, it, it's unfortunate, but this happens every single time. And you know, I'm actually surprised that we still see this happening on the news because it does happen every every year. I, I'm glad this a makes couple the news. Times.
0: I am too, uh, be, yes. because you can't. Like this is a deterrence to say, okay, if you get close to a bison, you're going to get gored. Um, but people still go. Uh, Juan, uh, how do we stop? How do we stop this? Uh, you can't. Can you see, I, I mean. <laughs> You can't, people you can't people. legislate stupidity. It's, right? I, I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. But even if you do legislate it, people will still be, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, breaking the law, if you will, which is already a law. So it's just that you can't. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is to educate people. Um, You know, I have seen people that uh, even in Yellowstone, which is a, you know, it's a national park, but there are parts of Yellowstone that are incredibly dangerous. I've seen tourists walk on the thermal areas and almost, you know, every couple of years you hear about somebody that was straight off the trail or straight off the boardwalks and went to a thermal area and they fell into one of the thermal pools and they literally get boiled
0: alive. Oh, not, not, not only is it. Boiling temperatures, but that's not water in there. Some of them are really acidic. some of them are
1: really acidic, or not basic on the other side. Um, There was a story about I don't know five years ago where this um, high school kid was walking alongside a off off limits area with his sister. He fell into a pool. She was not able to get him out. She went to get help. By the time the rangers got there, you know, it was too late. It was too dark. They could not find the body. The next day. The body had completely dissolved. Um, that's how terrible some of these places are, I and mean, people just don't pay attention and don't do Well, and do the you right hear thing. stories
0: too, Juan, of uh, you know people that cross over uh, barricades uh, yeah. on cliff sides to do a selfie, and then they fall off the cliff. I mean, uh, photography, as beautiful as it is as an art form, also uh, challenges people to step outside of uh, of sometimes quite literally safety nets. Um, people that have, uh, climbed to the tops of buildings without any safety equipment to take (laughs) selfies at the top of them have fallen off of those buildings on occasion, uh, to their demise. And, um, again, we we can't stop people from doing that. People are always going to be risk takers. But uh, as a piggyback story to this, I found on Petapixel, like a few stories up, um, uh, from the, the woman with the bison was one. Called uh, "How I Created a Magical Bear Photo" uh, by Sonya uh, Hiatala, and uh, it shows a woman. <laughs> and, and it's a composite, mind you. It's uh, and it's heavily edited, but it shows a woman. Well, staring, but you like, don't.
1: You, but you don't know that from the get-go, right? You
0: don't know that from the get-go. A woman like nose to nose with a bear in a in an interesting pose, and uh, I. It's I, I, I like the colors, the composition. I can tell it's a composite because the lighting doesn't match up, but right. that's me as a photographer um, being able to tell that. A casual person says, oh, look at that person just sitting right next to a bear. Oh, they're so cute and cuddly. I want to give it a hug. Um, that That's kind of pushing that mentality that it's okay to get close to these beautiful creatures um, that can kill you, right? Right, and you, and you kind of wonder... I mean, you could
1: say that this is irresponsible because, you know, people see this and say, oh, maybe I'll do this next time because they don't realize it's a composite and they want to go out and create something like this. So you could argue that this is irresponsible. But, you know, then again, you know, where we we do need to take some personal responsibility to what we do. Right. Um, Of course. You know, in an ideal world, you may want this person to disclose from the get go that this was a composite, that this was not. Uh, real-life situations so that they know it's a cute picture but um so it's then, kind of then again, i don't <laughs> know where I, I don't know where i lie on that you know should you should is it irresponsible is it not responsible or is it just art i mean it's certainly just art but you know i don't yeah know.
0: um i, I mean uh, be sure to label it as a composite as they did obviously in this article and t- 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 to be fair people keep bears as pets in russia uh that's true and that was I, my I, first I, thought I, when i saw <laughs> the picture is this somebody's pet bear? And I don't necessarily agree with a bear being kept as a pet, but, uh, but the fact is that it happens. Uh, and, and so you have this, uh, mentality of people that take these wild animals and embrace them on, on a, on a human level. Um, and these animals are cared for, uh, in, in zoos or wildlife rehabilitation centers where, Humans do get necessarily close to them, um, but I don't think that it should be glorified as a a thing where you can just walk into the woods and greet a bear eye to eye and expect to walk away from the experience intact.
1: Yeah, and as a matter of fact, there was a there was just another incident in Yellowstone with a uh, with a bear where a bear, mama bear, um, uh, injured a woman. Um, that a bear that was protecting its cubs. So it, it is a real thing. If you ever see. At a uh, you know a stuffed bear or a documentary or whatnot, and you see the size of the claws on these guys, you know, they're like six inches long. You know, with yeah. one swipe, these guys can totally disgorge you. So you have to be really respectful well, of
0: these uh, creatures. And, and there's there's bears of different sizes, you know, black bears aren't the yep. same as uh, brown or grizzlies, of course, being yep. larger. Um, but uh, w- when I spent some time, um, on uh, a photo expedition in the Yukon wilderness, uh, I was traveling with a group of hunters. And so they had the, the intent of, uh, of shooting anything that could possibly harm uh, me. So I was feeling safe around them, but, um, you know, I, I don't own a firearm and I don't necessarily know if I could, uh, you know, shoot an animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have great respect for the hunters that, uh, that respect, uh, and take everything and, and, and utilize it. And they're not, trophy hunting or anything. Right. Um, but, uh, at the same time I'm, I'm with this group of hunters and, uh, there were a number of occasions where, um, they had, uh, made their shot. Uh, and it was later in the day that we couldn't necessarily take, uh, all of the meat back to our camp. And so we would clean the animal as best we can and cover it up and we would come back the next day. Uh, and it's covered under dirt. Uh, which means a grizzly bear has found it mm-hmm. and has now claimed it as his or hers. And so that's really tricky because if you're in a heavily wooded area and you're trying to rescue <sighs> this animal that you've, uh, uh, that you've shot and you've taken responsibility for, and you hear a twig snap somewhere around you, you know, that grizzly bear is still there, uh, and could charge at you at any minute. And, uh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm terrified in that moment, right? Like it's, uh, these animals are dangerous. They could have attacked us. And so we had some of the hunters always just kind of panning around the entire landscape with arms drawn, uh, because you wouldn't necessarily even have time to raise the gun in order mm-hmm. to, uh, to protect yourself. You have to be at the ready. Uh, and so, uh, th- that's a specific scenario where that the wild animal is going to be defending what they consider to be their food. Um, but there's so many reasons why these animals will attack to protect themselves, to protect their young, uh, to protect their spoils. And you don't know what's going through their mind. Uh, well, I so, mean,
1: they're, they're acting on instinct, you know, and, and you're right that you know, when that bear cached its food by burying it, it claimed it. And at yep. that point, you know, a bear could come out of the woods. I mean, the bear could be ten, ten feet away. You won't see it behind those those bushes, and they'll come rushing at you. And you have a millisecond to respond. And you know, with a big, big grizz, you know, it doesn't matter what gun you have. You better be good at what you're doing. because yeah, you better know one how to shot shoot properly. Will piss him off more so yeah. one misplaced shot so you you just have to be you just have to be respectful you know this is the you're encroaching in their environment so you have to be ready to to suffer the consequences
0: if you decide to do that exactly exactly well let's uh Let's talk less about human nature and more about technological <laughs> advancements for the next story. That uh, so sounds let's, good. <laughs> uh, let's geek out about uh, some new, uh, new features that I never actually thought I would be reading about in 2020, um, uh, mainly because I just didn't think it was necessarily possible, and I'm very pleased to see it. Uh, Fujifilm has added raw video output and gimbal support and film simulation modes to the GFX 100. Now, gimbal support and film simulation modes I get. I mean, that's just an, a wonderful advancement. We're in the year of the firmware updates because we're not buying necessarily right. a lot of hardware. And we have uh, the, the wonderful engineers that make our cameras better uh, going to work uh, on the software side of things. So uh, the raw video output I thought was very interesting and teaming up with, um, uh, I believe this is only on the GFX 100, not the 50S or uh, or 50R, Um, but uh, partnered up with Atomos uh, with their Ninja V, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I own and I'm patiently waiting. I'm hoping it happens at some point this summer uh, to have support for the uh, the s uh, the s1h to have that same kind of support um, but we're getting that from Nikon we're seeing that from so many other players as well and now Fuji um, is adding raw video support now were people asking for it I don't know but uh, if you the have it, asking
1: would, it from it from the GFX 100. That's the question. Well, exactly,
0: because <laughs> <laughs> pe- there's an allure from medium format. Uh, sure. People have always uh, talked about the, the the quality, especially in terms of depth of field and and what have you uh, from that. And, uh, <laughs> I, you can debate this back and forth with me whether or not there is an appreciable difference because it's all based on distance from your subject and focal length mm-hmm. and so many other factors. And yes, you're playing an apples to oranges game. Um, we but could if talk about want...
1: an hour on just on that subject. So yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, we, w- when we're looking at video though, everybody sees the allure of medium format for stills. And I've never heard of somebody apply it to video, maybe because the video wasn't there in previous generations of hardware aside from maybe shooting IMAX film, um, which was a very special and niche thing. Mm-hmm. majority of filmmakers didn't necessarily go that route. Um, but now if you can shoot, um, uh, 4k in either 16 by nine or 17 by nine format, the standard UHD, which is 16 by nine or the DCI 4k, which is a little bit wider. Um, as raw video output. If you had that feature, Juan, would you?
1: Well I get you know I'm just confused because okay you have this this hundred megapixel sensor, right?
0: Mm-hmm
1: and you're shooting video only at 4K? Why? Why well, can't you shoot video at higher resolutions? Because you know that's you know that's one of the advantages of these high resolution sensors like you have in some of the uh, the red cameras, right? That you can because you can shoot with these big big sensors you can then crop in and multiply the effect of your telephoto lenses you know by not having a humongous telephoto lens and still get high you know high resolution 4K or UHD kind of kind of video so you know i know that if they do shoot raw at high you know 100 megapixels you know, that would just, you know, fill up a five terabyte drive in about five minutes (laughs) or less. But still, you know, I think that would be, to me, the advantage. You know, I I can, the one thing that I can see, if they're utilizing really the entire sensor, then doing pixel binning to come up with a 4K, one of the advantages of using that wide or big sensor may be the shallow depth of field, having even shallower depth of field than than a full frame camera uh, provides you. Um, But besides that, you know, what, what's really the, the big technical advantage technical as opposed to saying, hey, cool, we can do this. And, you know, by the way, I do give kudos to Fuji because Fuji is amazing in introducing and giving their users new features. Um, so this is kind of neat that they're doing this. It kind of goes along with what they're doing. Uh, I'm just, you know, maybe you can enlighten me. I don't see... Uh, what the practical implication of it is.
0: Yeah, and and you made a good point that it's pixel binning uh, in the sense that they're using almost the full sensor. Um, Obviously, they're going to have to crop the top and the bottom off a little bit. And uh, they've chosen, I guess, uh, of the 44 uh, uh, millimeter uh, horizontal size, uh, they're using 43.6 millimeters of that. For whatever reason, engineering, they carved a little bit off of it. But it's Mm -hmm. almost the full sensor. Probably um, for the pixel binning to, to... to fall to, into place. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so to make the math all work there. Right. Um, and w- w- why aren't you recording that at uh, the 100 megapixels or whatever the cropped version would be, maybe 70 or 80, because uh, you're cutting co- yeah. a lot off? Um, I, I would think that it has to be data throughput. Uh, even well, if you course, have the yeah. processing yeah. power to, uh, to generate a 4K file you might not have the ability to push 8K or something out to the memory card. I mean, there's going to be a bottleneck somewhere in this mm-hmm. system. And it's not true RAW if you're pixel binning, right? Uh, you're going to right. have to interpolate data at some point. Um, but just like Canon has had M RAW versions uh, on on their cameras, it's a, it's a RAW of sorts. And ProRes RAW isn't really a full RAW format. It's a compressed RAW format um, uh, as it was. So... <clears throat> would would you if you could shoot four k, would you shoot six? Would you shoot eight? i mean, um i'm I'm keen on shooting five point nine k raw on the s one h, but not for my own use. Um I would love to have that ability for documentary films that I uh, occasionally get uh, contracted and commissioned to uh, to to work on. And they want the best you can give them because they're going to match that to footage from who right. knows what variety of cameras and well, and the flexibility to, to crop field. in too, right? Exactly. Exactly. And 4K I think is the bare minimum for for shooting right. for uh that kind of production work right now because that's what the deliverable is. And so the more you can deliver above that, the better. Um Will anybody take this and run with this using the GFX 100 as a cinema tool? I think... Maybe, but it's going to be almost like shot on iPhone and all these wonderful uh, uh, cinemagraphic tools. And yes, technically it's shot on an iPhone, but there's this massive cage of equipment around it in order to, to make it capable of that equipment. Um, you'd have to have that same cage around a GFX 100. And it's a fairly big camera um, compared to you know its brethren of uh, 35 millimeter uh, SLRs. But when you but, have you the know, cage, the- it doesn't really make a big difference because it's still going to be massive, right?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is, too, that you're able to shoot at 400 megabits per second, which is, you know, a distinct advantage over, you know, DSLRs. You're in the range now of the red systems. So this could be considered kind of a poor man's red system or equivalent? I don't know.
0: I, well, uh, okay. And, and uh, you know, uh, credit to red, they're, they're doing a great job with their cameras, but they're decidedly cinema cameras. They're not still cameras. Right, right. Uh, and there are other uh, DSLR class cameras, uh, micro four thirds with the uh, GH5 and GH5S, uh, as well as um, the S1 series of cameras that can do 400 megabit per second. It's not every camera that can do that. Right. Um, very,
1: very few can do that.
0: Yeah, uh, and and there might be others from uh, other manufacturers as well, but it has to, you've got to put film uh, standards and video quality first, and then... Uh, establish a stills camera as kind of a, an attachment to that. Uh, and I've shot the GH5S as a 12 megapixel camera uh, using it for stills. And they were some of the best pixels that I've ever seen out of a modern camera, but I only have 12 megapixels of them. Right. Uh, and so it was really designed around film. So it's interesting to see this attachment. I'm really curious to see what Fuji's going to go. But honestly, I want to give applause to Atomos because you've got to partner with somebody to do this externally, uh, to to yes. have this just data yep. throughput to an external source, uh, and uh, and to have the Ninja V being so versatile, I bought one uh, a, a while back as just an external monitor, and I just figured, hey, you know, external recording might be nice. Maybe I could get some better quality in some cases, not knowing that I would have the ability to be shooting ProRes RAW on it uh, within the foreseeable future uh so it's it's a great tool and i think that if if you're in the cinema space um take a look at what Atomos' offerings are because they're going to take whatever camera you're using and give you even better video output um in certain cases you know like this one
1: right no i agree and and having that external monitor it gives you a lot of flexibility and much much better viewing experience when you're out there i have an external monitor I've, i've considered buying an atomos especially the five uh, for a while now, but I'm not doing as much video work anymore as I used to. So I haven't, I haven't jumped on the bandwagon, but I've been tempted also because one of the neat things about it for what I do uh, sometimes the educational aspect of the work that I do is being able to film in the field, the view from the camera itself which these external recorders allow you to do so they can you know it can show the entire viewfinder what the view the user would be seeing um i do that at home connecting my camera to a video capture card but being being able to do that in the field uh with the addition of doing the you know enhanced recording and having the focus peaking and and you know all you know looking at the the scopes, all that kind of stuff, it, it's a huge advantage if you're doing a, a lot of cinema work, for sure. It's a
0: great educational tool, especially yeah. when you're trying to show somebody what your camera's doing and not just what the camera's seeing. Right. Um, and uh, so I've done some recording for some educational videos that I've done, specifically leaving that overlay on so right. that people can kind of see what I would be seeing if they were looking directly through my camera's viewfinder. Um, and, yeah, so there's uh, great tools to have that external recorder handy. Um <laughs> Let's talk about another interesting tool. When I saw this uh, this article come up, I thought, <clears throat> you know, I've got enough camera accessories. I've got <laughs> filters galore. I've got step-up rings and so many other things. And I saw this tool and I thought, number one, why the heck did this not exist before? And number right. two, please take my money. Um, except... Uh, I realized it doesn't actually fit the kind of gear that I have. So uh, let's let's go back. Uh, H&Y uh, Revo ring. Variable step-up rings allow, uh, allow filters to fit multiple lens thread sizes. So let's say you've bought into uh, 67 or 82 millimeter uh, filters, and you've got your whole set for that. And I've done this, and I think it's a smart thing to do. Buy filters in one size. Uh, based on whatever the uh, right. widest, the, the biggest filter thread size that you have, uh, and then use step-up rings if you have a lens of a smaller size. So you only have one set of filters and you can adapt them to all of your lenses. And I've got a pouch that has all of these different step-up rings, you know, 52, 58, you know, 62, etc., all the way up to, for me, 77. Um, but this has a really interesting, what would you describe it as, Juan? What what, what are we looking at here? Uh,
1: well, this is, you know, this is the equivalent of a variable in but in the step-up ring world right it's (laughs) a variable step-up ring in that you can dial in within ranges the size of your filter versus the diameter of your of your lens um i think it's kind of neat like i said like you i was like why didn't anybody come up with this before but at the same time i was disappointed in that they have very kind of narrow ranges and i understand you know there's only so much they can do. So, for example, they have ranges from 30, thirty-seven to forty-nine. So that I guess if you have a forty-nine filter, uh, you actually can then, that would be
0: a fifty-two millimeter filter. Sorry. So, uh, um, so a fifty-two millimeter filter would have. So when a they say the 37 sent
1: to forty-nine, would be the internal. The, yeah the, that, the that, that's okay.
0: the starting point and then Perfect. from there you would have a 46 to 62 which accommodates right. a 67 millimeter filter and mm-hmm. a 67 to 82 millimeter adjustment uh that would also accommodate an 82 millimeter filter size right um that's great but the majority of people uh i, I don't know if if you see this as well uh like me use 77 millimeter filters I use missing f-
1: Use it. Okay. Um, I use 82 because it oftentimes shouldn't wide angle you want, you know, and you're using a 77, having the 77 lens, having the 82 gives you a little bit more room so you don't mm-hmm. get any vignetting. So that's why I like to, to use 82. Um, but yeah, but the concept is the same. I use 82 and then usually step down rings to 77 and then maybe to 72. Those right. are usually the two that I use the most.
0: So I I think it's it's great that you've got this level of adjustment and it kind of uh, it's a ring, like a a grabbing circle that goes in and kind of clasps the the filter threads. Yes. Uh, Check out the show notes at PhotoGeekWeekly.com in order for you to kind of get a visual on how it works. And there's a video uh, in, in the link as well. I, and the price point is, uh, I've, I've bought some uh, uh, step-up uh, rings from Breakthrough Photography. Uh, that costs and, the same. <laughs> and it's about the same price. I mean, they're really nice. They're <laughs> machined brass, and they, they don't get stuck as much. They've got some mold uh, edges uh, around. As, yeah, much. as much. As much. <laughs> uh, they've, they've got the uh, the textured edges, which help to, to detach them. Uh, with, uh, and still, sometimes they do get stuck. But they're around the same price point. So to have something that's much more versatile, to get one... And done. Um, I I think that that's that's really cool. So thirty five yeah. to forty dollars uh, for this filter, and uh,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that, that it would be. You know, I think what would clinch it for me is if, like we just said, if it was made in such a way that it would never get stuck. Right. Yeah. That would be amazing because even like you said, the the well machined um, step up rings, like the ones from Breakthrough Photography, made of brass you know they're supposed to not stick but they do stick you know they're they don't do it as much but they still do it and as murphy's law would dictate it opens happens the worst possible moment right when the light <laughs> is changing and you want to change that filter right away and you're like oh crap
0: well, so a- if at least the- help
1: that that would be great
0: yeah, at least the, the inner ring won't get stuck because it looks like it's easily detachable. Right. But that's right. never the one that gets stuck. It's exactly. usually the one that's stuck to the filter itself. <laughs>
1: <Right>. It's the <laughs> right. outer ring there. The big ring at the front would, if, if, yeah, to me, I would pay good money if someone came up with an absolutely guaranteed not to stick uh, step, uh, step up ring. But I do like this and I may pick one up just to try them out because I think it would be. Um, it would be really useful. Like you said, it's one less piece of kit. And over the years, I've been working at you know, uh, limiting the kit that I'm taking out on the field. The less stuff that I take, the better it is. Because the less options, the less crap I'm carrying, the lighter on my, my back is. So anything that helps in lowering the weight and the size of my kit, I'm all for. Especially when there's something pretty affordable like this.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I'm thinking of even though I've got the the 77 millimeter filters, and they don't have a product uh, comparable uh, for that right now. Um, right. I might just pick up one just so that I can see how it works and whether or not it's willing to be recommended mm-hmm. in a practical sense. Um, yeah, I'm actually ma-
1: surprised. You're right that they don't have one for 77 filters.
0: Yeah, I, I just I, to me, that's bizarre. I, it's an oversight. Um, yeah. Anyhow, uh, maybe that'll come in the future. Uh, maybe they'll add that. This is a Kickstarter campaign right now. They've hit their funding. And so you can get in at, uh, I'm assuming, a uh, less than what their retail price is going to be. So uh, check that out. But also check out Juan Ponds. Where can people find you, Juan, online uh, where you're doing workshops? Probably not a whole lot of them right now in 2020. Um, but I'm <laughs> sure there's plans for future ones and uh, we're people see your work
1: well yeah i mean you're right in that uh, a lot of the trips for 2020 in my case have been postponed or canceled it's it's actually been uh Uh, a little disappointing because i'm used to traveling i haven't been home since i haven't i've been home since march i've not been able to travel at all but you know the best way to find anything about my workshops and my trips and what i'm doing is at juanpons.org which is my website there's links in there to just about everything that i do and if it's not the link is not there it will be up there pretty soon
0: and that's Um, j-u-a-n-p-o-n-s dot o-r-g the ORG. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Don. Perfect. And the, the links to that uh, will be in the show notes. And I'll probably uh, put the links where people can find you on social media and wherever you uh, you offer up your wonderful musings uh, in the show notes as well, so people <laughs> can stay in touch. Um, now, let's go on to our final story. I, I didn't even want to really, really add this in as a story, but I wanted to put this in the show notes because I just want everybody to watch this video. Yeah. Um, we... We talked about a previous episode where they had a spy pig that was torn apart by Komodo dragons from the same series. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought that it was hilarious to, to see the lengths that these, uh, uh, these cinematographers, these documentary uh, photographers uh, and videographers go through to get footage of certain things. So, uh, again, reported by Petapixel, robot spy turtle lays, quote, camera eggs for vultures to steal. Um, did you watch this video one? Of course I did.
1: Okay. How can I not? And you know, it's actually, I think it's the same people that made that flying hummingbird camera.
0: I I think so as well. Yeah. They're doing all sorts of really, really, uh, really cool things. And
1: they're insanely well done. That turtle looks actually looks real.
0: Oh yeah. The vultures couldn't tell the difference. Uh, they were pecking at the, and they, they cut the, uh, the short clip that, that we see short of the vultures actually doing anything with the eggs, which makes me all the more want to watch this entire series and right. pay them some money to, to actually watch that. Cause I want to know what happens once those vultures stole those eggs. Um, so they, they, they timed it such that their, uh, robo turtle, their camera (laughs) turtle, which again, really well done animatronics, (laughs) uh, and, and everything. Um, the other turtles didn't mind this turtle being about, and this turtle had, uh, I don't know if they went so far as to having the turtle itself dig its hole for the eggs. Um, maybe they had some human help to do that, but all of the other turtles had finished, uh, and the vultures were now going after whatever eggs might still be available, uh, that have not been covered. And so they timed it such that the uh, the egg drop was after all the turtles had finished, and you can see these eggs that are—I guess they put like some glue and some sand on them to make them look like they were sticky. Um, uh, coming out of a real turtle, they they went all the way there, um, and then it drops these little turtle eggs that have camera lenses on them. It's just, it's wonderful to see the extent of the innovation to get this type of footage. Go watch it. And if you're like me, you want to see how this ends, uh, maybe pay them some money And some... I don't even know how I could uh, get the whole series, but I'm going to look into that and uh, see how it uh, pans out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does seem that it's going to be a series on PBS or something like that. I think that they, they allude to PBS. So I, I thought, you know, both the the... Uh, innovation happening here Um, but you know to me because i'm a geek you know looking at the detail the attention to detail the way that the turtle moves it's just unreal i i didn't think the pig was all that believable because it was kind of stiff but the turtle actually looked real it looked like it was even moving up the sand with its flippers and i don't know if you noticed at the very beginning they had a flying vulture as well as a drone yeah, um, that, that looked amazing. The way that it actually landed, opened its legs as it landed, it was just um, so. From both the 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 documentary perspective, the camera photography perspective, but also from the geek perspective of the drones and the remote control
0: aspect of it, is just just mind boggling. I mean, the, they could even commercialize some of these things. Like, if you had the option to buy a drone or a vulture drone. <laughs> I mean, I, I might go for the vulture drone just for the 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 geekery of that, too. It's yeah. like cosplaying with my camera equipment. um <laughs>
1: So, See, I, I'd go for the hummingbird drone because I that, I thought that was the best. I oh, yeah, that, that was, was, that was very was well
0: done as well. Um, all right. So check that out. The link is in the show notes at PhotoGeekWeekly.com. Robot spy turtle. Um, uh, just <laughs> take, take a few minutes out of your day. It's only a few minutes to watch this and, and you'll smile. Uh, and we all need another reason to smile these days, I think. I agree. Right, let, let, let's get into our picks of the week um uh you know one why don't you go first as uh, as the guest here uh wh- what do you have to share with us
1: well you know this is funny this is a uh, uh a tool we, we talked about this briefly at the beginning before we started recording a lot of folks when they get their camera the camera usually comes with a battery charger and for them that's usually good enough and you know in most cases it is but for me it's never good enough because i usually have multiple batteries that i'm trying to charge and oftentimes i have multiple types of batteries depending on the camera that i'm using so my pick of the week is a new charger that's been out i've had a i've had a uh one of these for a while now that i got it from china because they weren't available in the u.s but i'm seeing now that they're readily available on amazon. amazon um and it says charger by isdt and it this one's specifically for sony systems because i shoot sony And what's cool about this is that it has two battery bays. But not only that, this charger can charge the three types of Sony still camera batteries that exist. Um, The ones that you use, like the FW50s, which were the ones that we use for like the A6000 um, crop sensor cameras. The FZ100 series, which are the ones that are used by the newer A7R or A9 series cameras, as well as the little... Um, I forget what they're called. I think it's BX1 uh, batteries that are used by the point-and-shoots, the Sony point-and-shoots, because I use an RX100 and shoot mm-hmm. oftentimes when I'm out there. I use that for video quite a bit. So this one charger can charge all three types of Sony batteries, but they and also have like a, a whole um, LCD display that gives you the status of the battery, how good the battery is, the charging And two of them cycle. at once, right? And two of them at once. Um, and it, it's a rapid charger. And best of all, it uses USB-C for its power. So oh, you cool. can use any type of charger that you have out there. I'm trying to standardize everything on USB-C because I find it so versatile. And it's so awesome that this uses USB-C charger.
0: Well, and, and I think equally awesome is the price point of $35 yes. US, right? yes. So if you're trying to simplify your photo kit and you don't want to carry around multiple chargers or you want to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the charger's got to plug into a wall outlet of something and you got to carry that along with you as well. USB-C, two ports, 35 bucks US on Amazon. Uh, the link to that will be in the show notes. And yeah, you can't beat uh, it. as I was saying uh, at the beginning, before we started recording, uh, when I saw this pick, um, you don't think to upgrade your charger. Because it's just good enough; it it does the job. I mean, uh, I I don't think of it as a point of convenience or uh, inconvenience. It's just a thing. But when I saw this, that thing can be much better than the thing that comes with the camera. Uh, No, so and and for a marginal price. So check that out. I really appreciate that recommendation, Juan. Mine is is about uh, adaptation, and uh, I'm shooting with a mirrorless system now, and so I found that uh, I'm trying to adapt lenses from all sorts of different lens mounts uh, to, to work with mine. The most commonly available adapters that I have are the Canon EF to the, uh, the Leica L mount. But I recently picked up a, uh, a lens that was Nikon, and I needed to find a Nikon to the EOS, um, uh, to, to the EF mount, and uh, then I can adapt that further on. And it, it doesn't require any controls uh, for the lens. It's it's an, it's an not an older lens. It's an older lens design. It's um, uh, the evolution of the UV NICOR 105 millimeter uh, macro lens, which is made with quartz elements. And uh, it's for ultraviolet photography. Totally geeking out on that. And I'm experimenting with it right now, especially for UV video. That's going to be cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I had to adapt it, right? So I looked for uh, a well-designed adapter and there's a ton of people that make these adapters, but I just wanted to call out this brand, uh, GOBE or GOBI, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but G O B E. Um, they are trying to, uh, to plant trees in deforested or, uh, uh, desert type areas, uh, when you buy some of their camera equipment. So if I buy and, and I've bought this Nikon F to Canon EF, uh, uh lens adapter, um, they will plant five trees, uh, and you know if you if you look about uh, where they're they're saying that they're now planting in Mozambique, uh, and and the whole idea is that you can buy tons of uh camera filters accessories lens adapters uh even prints and for the products that you buy from them they will be planting trees in Mozambique um which I think is a great cause um it's a $30 lens adapter I could get those adapters for less than $30 um I'm not sure if the quality is going to be comparable to anything less expensive but just as a charitable cause as well to kind of have a feel-good feeling about buying another piece of camera gear um five more trees have been planted for my purchase and potentially yours as well. If you need an adapter, they sell more than just Nikon uh, to Canon adapters. There's a whole list of them on their website. Uh, I'll put a link specifically to the one that I bought, but check around their shop to their filters, accessories, and et cetera, uh, and see something from them that uh, might support their cause and uh, help you itch that um, uh, camera gear obsession of needing to buy new things.
1: Yeah, they seem to have adapters for just about everything that's out there. So that's pretty cool. And they look like really high quality as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, And uh, yeah, I hadn't heard of them before I I went out for this search. And so I wanted to make sure that that brand name is known by people. Uh, And that's uh, mygobe.com, M-Y-G-O-B-E.com. Buy direct from them and uh, help make the world a better place. That ends our podcast for the day Uh, Juan. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure, a delight to have uh, have your opinions shared. Uh, I believe our audience will appreciate you as well. And we'll have to have you back on in the future.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. And yeah, anytime, just let me know. I'll, I'll be happy to come back on. Thank you.
0: And thank you to everybody for listening to Photo Geek Weekly. It's been another great episode. Uh, Appreciate any feedback that people have on this episode and any previous ones. It's always uh, well-received on my end uh, and for the guests. So with all that said, it's time to stay in and shoot.